think a lot of people are drawn to cryptocurrencies because of the promise of blockchain technology and the upside of that. And for, I mean, and, and other reasons as well. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's a freely traded mechanism that's driven by supply and demand, or I would argue fear and greed primarily. And that means you're going to have all sorts of, it's a petri dish for behavioral biases. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Archetype Wealth Partners or its advisors. The mention of different asset types or securities do not constitute a recommendation for our clients. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast, please contact your advisor. In this episode of Navigating the Noise, I'm joined by David Keller of StockCharts.com to discuss the benefits and pitfalls of trading volatile assets like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. We also covered several technical trading tools that were created for traditional markets but have proven to work in crypto. A podcast on fast-moving markets wouldn't be complete without discussing the impact of behavioral economics. Listen up to hear David share his knowledge. Thanks, everyone, for joining today. I have with me David Keller, uh, Chief Market Strategist at StockCharts.com formerly at Fidelity. So David, thanks for joining and maybe you can um, tell us a little bit about yourself and your experiences in the market and how those compare to the new upstart crypto markets. Absolutely. It's good to be with you, Kane. Um, so I've been in the industry for about 21 years now. I actually started at Bloomberg in New York in, uh, in mid 2000. So it's interesting as we've seen cryptos rotate from a, a, an explosive growth phase to more of a distribution phase recently. It reminds me a lot of learning technical analysis in the early 2000s. My introduction to investing was watching the tech bubble explode and watch charts that just kept going up and to the right with no end in sight. And it was not about fundamentals. It was just about pure upside momentum and watching that dissipate so quickly and seeing seasoned investors rocked by the the change and 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 you know in some ways how quickly it was in some ways how slow and painful that rotation was as as people kind of recognized that things were were less ideal so i was at bloomberg in new york from 2000 to 2008 and then was hired by fidelity to run their technical research department which i did from 08 to uh, 16 and you know there to be honest with you my whole first stages of my career were built on investor psychology and sentiment and behavioral finance and technical analysis. I, I studied music and psychology as an undergrad. And so the psychology part of it, when I realized there was a toolkit called technical analysis that helped you quantify investor psychology and, you know, recognize that people made imperfect decisions and you could quantify that and analyze that and adjust for that, I, I was completely hooked. Uh, and so I left Fidelity in 2016. I launched my own firm called Sierra Alpha Research in 2017. And then just about two years ago, was hired by Stock Charts, uh, moved to Redmond, Washington in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, I'm the chief market strategist there. So it's been, it's been really fun. I've, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of really talented investors with my time at, at Bloomberg and then uh, at Fidelity, obviously working with some really successful money managers. And it, it has struck me, I, I'm sure we'll get into some of the behavioral challenges that uh, crypto investors and crypto traders face. And I will tell you that seasoned investors face in many ways, the exact same issues. It doesn't get easier when there are more zeros in the account, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And a lot there, we share a lot of similar passions. Um, I went through part of the CMT program, uh, technician by trade by heart. Um, so I love that side of the market as and, and started in computers, finished in finance. So mm. I get it, it makes a lot of sense. And over the early years of 2006 and seven, eight, nine, learned a, a lot about the psychology part of the market, uh, which which you mentioned. On, and we'll definitely talk about that um, later, because I think it's a big, important piece to the crypto puzzle. And so the goal here is to kind of uh, merge the traditional financial guys with the crypto financial guys and fill that void that right now, even though we're a little over a decade in uh, to, you know, huge bull markets with a lot of attention, uh, there's still a divide. Traditional guys that you, that you early in your career probably worked with are just now coming around to crypto or just now believing. And then the crypto guys just don't have as much experience on the market side. So you mentioned 2000, it does feel, I, I was not in the market in 2000, I was still in college, but Historically, it does feel a lot like that now. Um, you know, it's very promising technology, and we know these boom to bust cycles exist. 
And then later on the good stuff rises to the top and we get these products. Um, is there any way just kind of through your, you know, the technicals that you use or the indicators you use or, or your process that you better define trends when it's up, when it's down, when there's this conversion from one to other, is that something you can share with uh, listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say there, there are a whole range of tools. The technical toolkit is, I, I would argue there are three things that any investor is trying to do, regardless of what asset class you're, you're looking at. It's to identify trends, to follow those trends, and then anticipate when those trends are, are over. And those are the three questions you should be trying to ask or trying to answer in, in any environment. So if you're looking at a chart of Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or, or the S&P 500 or whatever it is, you should be making those basic assumptions and, and surrounding yourself with tools and resources to help you answer those questions effectively. And when I when I found investors or, or traders falling off and, and struggling performance wise, it's because they're failing to answer those questions appropriately and they're getting caught up into all the other narratives and things that aren't just looking at the trends. And so there are a series of tools you can use. It starts with a very simplistic analysis of trend. This is what Charles Dow, you know, designed over a hundred years ago. I mean, the basic foundations of technical analysis were charting prices and looking to see if the high prices are getting higher and if the low prices are getting higher. Are we in a pattern of higher highs and higher lows? And if you imagine the chart of Bitcoin in your head and you go from mid 2020 to maybe the first quarter, April of, uh, of 2021, you saw that consistent pattern of higher highs and higher lows. And that shows you that there's a pattern of accumulation. Buyers are buying in on each uh, short-term weak point. And then that changed. You should you saw a rotation from when you no longer saw higher highs, you started to put in lower highs. You didn't see any higher lows. The lows were getting lower and it was a rotation lower. And there are a bunch of other tools like moving averages and, and others that help you, you know, more systematize those. But at the end of the day, I think it's a very simple analysis of trend. Uh, and, and that's the first thing I, I coach new analysts on when, I, when I've coached technical analysis, uh, analysis uh, a newer analyst, or I've taught at the college level, is that the very first question is, what is the trend on this chart? And, and answer that first, and then follow up with all the details after that. And that's really important, specifically in Bitcoin, crypto markets, whichever you know coin you may follow, because one of the bigger challenges, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, and I think it might be a barrier or has been a barrier for most traditional guys is, the amount of news, the amount of, you know, memes, the amount of, oh, what about this token or what about this or what about all these never ending narratives that are 24 seven, does that make it harder? Uh, or is there a way that that within is it strictly as easy as highs and lows? And when those change, just ignore the news. Yeah, no, that's a really good question, Kane. I would say so what I just what I just described is super easy if you can digest massive drawdowns and huge volatility, because the chart of Bitcoin, when you zoom back, looks super orderly and very straightforward. But these are career busting waves that are happening. I mean, these are big moves that are going on. And so I think the volatility is what's challenging for people, the magnitude of the price swings just on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, it, it, it's much more volatile and much more uncertain. And the uncertainty, I think, uh, has made a lot of uh, certainly traditional investors struggle with how to just think about that. And But the, the reality is any sort of momentum approach, if you're looking at following trend, there is a natural volatility that's built into that, right? Without the volatility, there's no real opportunity. Trends are built on price movements and, and and watching those evolve over time. So what I would say for something like Bitcoin is it's less, um, you know, a question of the simplicity of highs and lows. It's also thinking about your timeframes very well. So I think, you know, if I'm looking at the chart of Bitcoin for the last year, I'm going to have one set of conclusions about the overall characteristics of the trend. But if I'm looking at an hourly chart, I'm really trying to understand right now this range between 30,000-ish and 42,000-ish on, on Bitcoin, I'm looking at an hourly chart and I'm trying to understand the, the shorter term fluctuations that that larger trend is made of. So I found a lot of newer investors have an incorrect use of timeframes. They're, they're using a chart that's not really helping them answer the question they're trying to ask based on the timeframe they're trying to operate on. And that's a great point. Um, in college, uh, that was sort of where I got started. And to me, it all refers back to is what's your style? Um, and most investors, it seems a lot of times don't have a style or their style this quarter is different from last quarter and next quarter is going to be totally different. Um, but we all inherently, just like we pick our clothes, we pick our cars, we pick our houses, we have a style. And, and for an investor, it's really important 
to find that out because it will keep you from doing exactly what you mentioned. But that's how um, I saw a post that you did on timeframes, something that I learned from, from using Tom Demark's work and uh, talking and working a little bit with Jason Pearl, just through email on how timeframes work and how important those are. And that was over a decade ago, but maybe you can walk us through the importance of using three different time timeframes, multiple timeframes, and making sure those timeframes fit the style of trader that, that or investor that you are. You know, uh, it's a great question, Ken. I would say to your point on different styles, I, I think a lot of newer investors try to find the answer, right? What is the right style? And I, and I will tell you, I mean, as I was told, and I'm sure you were, there's no holy grail. There's no there's no one thing that's going to help you make sense of everything at all times. And I'd also say there's no there's no 100% right answer. There's some very successful, and just from the equity uh, background that I have, they're, they're very successful value investors. And I've met equally successful growth investors. And they have very different styles, completely you know, incompatible styles at times, but they both find ways to grow wealth over time by investing consistently. So I, I would encourage your listeners to... to think less about what's the right answer and think more about what's the right answer for me and my style. And I, and I found, you know, having a, an approach that jives with you and how you're trying to, you know, what, what you're trying to actually accomplish, what your goals are, that's how you're going to be successful over time. Um, you know, to your question on timeframes, I think it's, it's crucial. I, you know, I'm often asked, you know, what do you think of Bitcoin? It's a standard question when I'm doing a media interview. And, and my first response is always, well, what what time frame are we talking about? Are you talking about the next couple of minutes or the next couple of years? Because and and somewhere in the middle. And I think, you know, for me, we we a lot of times put the blinders on and limit ourselves by focusing on one particular time frame. So if I'm looking at the chart of Bitcoin, my go-to chart is probably a one-year daily chart of Bitcoin, because that takes you back to sort of the bounce off of 10,000 at this point, that big acceleration up to the 40s, big acceleration up to 64,000, and then everything that's happened since then, and now more of the range-bound environment we're in. But it helps put the current trend into proper context because you understand where we came from and where we headed and, and now where we're at. Um, but also you have to remember that there is a much longer narrative, which is the long-term appreciation of, of Bitcoin. And you know, if you look at the pullback we're in, I, I'm still very constructive, even though you know, Bitcoin's almost halved from where it was, you know, a couple months ago, the long-term trajectory of Bitcoin is huge drawdowns like we've just experienced and equal accelerations to the upside as it grows beyond what people would have expected before. So you have to re recognize that the recent pullback and corrective pattern has been part of a much longer cycle of those, uh, you know, sort of boom and bust moves. And then you also have to remember the shorter term. And I would I would argue with something like cryptocurrencies, any market where you have an influx of newer participants, where you have people that are, um, you know, that are in general a little more focused on speculation than income generation, more on, uh, you know, focusing on short-term movements, uh, then you have to compress your time frame a little bit. So I think looking, you know, I've looked at a lot more hourly charts and five-minute charts of Bitcoin than I do on an average stock because you really want to understand the short-term dynamics and how they're fluctuating. And for me, a proper analysis of Bitcoin would take all of those. You think about the long-term trajectory over the last, you know, five, six, seven plus-ish years. You look at the last year or two and think about this short-term, shorter-term pattern. And then you really look at the short-term dynamics and recognize where today's move fits into that long picture. If you do all of those, I think you can answer the question pretty well about where Bitcoin is at. So define your style look at multiple timeframes and then figure out which one works for you. Um, you only go. thing I would add there, and I don't like to go down to hourly because it generally leads to people over trading and day trading and, and taking a you know scalping here and there. And then three weeks later, like, man, that was a mistake. Um, having, you know, I can say that from doing it, but down in the hourly, one of the bigger benefits that I've found, and this is over a decade is you will see similar structures in hours that you might've seen at tops or bottoms in 2008 and nine or uh, NASDAQ 2000 tops or the Nikkei tops. And you see those in the hourlies, which give you that alert, whether it's top or bottom that, Hey, I've seen this before because I've looked at thousands of charts across many time frames. You're like, wait, I recognize that. And yeah. then you, you, then you zoom out and you say, okay, well, let me go. Did that change my daily structure or what if 
this leads to this next level, does that change? And then you look at what's the weekly structure and monthly. So I, I like to use, I mean, I kind of say weekly first then daily monthly to get a gauge. Okay. Um, cause that weekly shakes out a lot of noise. It's sort of like looking at point and figure charts. Um, yeah. and, and then the other point, you know, with the narratives and, and all the emotional news and, and memes is the only way I've found to shake that out is price will tell you before headline ever does. Do you, uh, agree, disagree, or do you look at it that way? Is that something that's helpful? No, I, I've often told people that the reasons why price evolves in a certain way, the reasons are usually crystal clear in the rearview mirror. Things will make sense down the road as to why something evolved a certain way. And I'll, I, the, the time that that was cemented in my head was sort of the mid 2000s when you had, or, you know, to the, the teens, probably when the stocks were rallying and gold started rallying aggressively and stocks and gold were just moving higher. And I kept being pounded by by uh, you know external research and 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 commentators talking about how gold is a safe haven and it's obviously not going to be able to keep going up because it's a safety trade and stocks are working. But despite that, <laughs> gold and stock kind of went up. And then later you kind of realize, okay, what was actually happening? Okay, this is what it was. So a lot of the fundamental reasons why things happen are much easier to describe after it's happened when you can look back and understand the dynamics. In the heat of the moment, I think price tells you what you need to know because it reflects all of our collective, you know, opinion of what's happening right now. And 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 it's it's the emotional drivers, it's the fear of missing out that drives prices higher in any asset. It's the fear of losing everything that causes prices to go down and to accelerate. And I think looking at price is going to put you on the on the right side of things more often than not. The reasons will become uh, will make a lot more sense down the road when the book is written about this year and this uh, this period. And um, shameless plug for stockcharts.com, um, John Murphy's intermarket analysis, mm -hmm. um, in my opinion, hands down one of the top five books for yeah. deciphering the price and how those relate from one aspect set to the next um i i go back to it every few years um anytime i'm lost i go to that and yeah. and just kind of recycle through uh yeah. really does help you see those rotations from one asset to another to another that you mentioned yeah um is there any more context or or, or kind of um aha moments you can share with the audience about the difference between over trading and maybe dollar cost averaging, because that's one of the things we get a lot in the wealth management businesses. Oh, we should buy this. We should buy that. We should buy this. And the world's a little bit easier these days with, with ETFs that function like stocks, but act like mutual funds, kind of give you that indexed approach for different themes. Are there any negatives or positives to overtrading or dollar cost averaging? I have a couple of thoughts on this. I mean, um, you know, I'll tell you that uh, there's there's a lot to be uh, wary of in terms of trading. I think a lot of newer traders don't recognize the importance or or the the harm that overtrading can do. Right, and, and and on the institutional side, we'd always talk about turnover. And it struck me. I'll, I'll tell you my my first experience at Fidelity, my for, my formative days meeting with a bunch of the portfolio managers for the first time. And I'd worked with money managers before, but this was really getting to know them intimately in their process. It struck me how little action they actually took on an average day. Now, these are long-term investors. They're, 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 they're shooting for years down the road. So they're not meant to be, you know, it's not an active trading kind of thing. But it struck me how low a lot of their turnover was meant to be. They did not want to turn over their portfolio. They did not want to trade very actively. And it struck me a lot of times we think of trading and we think of the verb trading as taking action. To trade, you actually have to go do something. If you're doing it right, I would argue a lot of times you're not doing anything. You're not taking action. And a lot of times not taking action is what is dictated by the action, by, by the activity in the markets. And knowing uh, Jesse Livermore's quote, said, there's a time to go long, a time to go short, and a time to go fishing. And I think you have to remember that a good analyst, a good trader, a good money manager recognizes when the conditions are right to make a certain bet. And at early, you know, novice investors tend to just try to force it and they try to keep trading until something works. And you have to remember, it's a lot of it should be pretty boring, which is you're looking for the right set of circumstances, the right configuration, the right signal. When is it actionable? When is the appropriate time and, uh, and doing that? And, and I will tell you, to be honest, I think one of the great ways to 
fight that urge to overtrade to you know to give someone people some actionable ideas. I would say number one, the worst thing that happens on most brokerage sites when you bring them up the first thing in the morning is it shows you today's change. It shows you a little chart probably of today's movement. And the worst thing you can do is orient yourself to the trading day by thinking about the last couple seconds, right? You are immediately drawn into short-termism. You're, you're immediately drawn into, oh man, I need to sell, I need to buy. There's a lot of reds and greens and colors telling you things. We always call it the flickering ticks of the market. And I'll tell you the first thing I look at every day on stock charts is a weekly chart of the S&P 500 for the last seven years. That is literally every morning, the very first thing I look at. It doesn't change much. But it reminds me that my goal is a long-term investor. I'm shooting down the road three, six, 12 months. And so if that's what I'm trying to do, I better think as a long-term investor from the very beginning. And then at the very end of my morning coffee routine, as I'm going through all these things, then I look at today's trading and how that fits into the trends that I've been looking at. But I would, I would say leave your uh, brokerage website buried somewhere on a, Chrome, on a browser at some point. Start with long-term, start with the big picture. As you mentioned, you do as well. And then get to the short-term stuff at the end, and then you're properly orienting yourself. I think as you should. And I think that's important. I mean, um, maybe the wrong analogy, but it, it trading, so to speak, is a lot of times like being a sniper. So if you know the prices when you would act, and the levels which you, when you would buy or sell, you're just sitting there waiting. Yeah. And, and it might be days, it might be weeks, it might be months. And I think that's hard. Um, for the average person that maybe doesn't do it for a living or maybe just hasn't done it so many times that they realize that, man, I've, I have to change my ways if I want to get, get a different outcome. Jesse Livermore, great. Uh, for those that don't know, arguably one of the greatest traders of all time. Um, I spent a couple of years just reading anything I could find about him, reminiscence of a stock operator, different biographies. Um, he kind of did the same thing, morning coffee, uh, locked himself in his office, uh, there was a stack of newspapers. He didn't read them. He scanned for major headlines that might cause different price actions. Now he had a different, and we'll, this will be a good lead into your behavioral side of things. He started in the bucket shops and he was the kid that ran to the chalkboard and, and wrote the new price, which came off the ticker tape. Um, so he learned that natural ebb and flow. And again, he only watched five stocks. I think it was at most but he had a general sense of where the major indices at the time was the Dow uh, was on basically a weekly basis. Um, very successful, many boom and bust, but, but uh, maybe that'll help lead us into, and you can talk a little bit about the behavioral aspects of traditional markets, how you see those similar to crypto or different from crypto. Uh, maybe there's something we can learn from that. Yeah, I mean, you. I think you you said earlier when we were talking about uh, the chart of Bitcoin that you said, you know, something I've seen before. I've seen that before. And I think what you have to remember is even though cryptocurrencies as an asset class are very new, what is not new is the fact that it's a bunch of humans that are trading it. And human nature, while is evolving, it certainly is not very different from what you'd read in the book about Jesse Livermore, right? And reminiscences mm -hmm. of the stock operator, completely different market, different structure, you know, his whole thing was in, as you mentioned, in the bucket shops and, and really tape reading, right? Anal and analyzing price movements when things are trading on eighths, right? Eighths of a dollar. Uh, so it's a, it's a totally different world. But a lot of the lessons that he talked about, which is like having a good process and getting out of your own way and, and thinking about risk versus return, these are, you know, standard parts of the investing toolkit that we now take for granted. But I mean, it's uh, it's it's worth going back if you've not read some of those books uh, to do it. And, and I would add to those um, things like Once in Golconda, which is a, a way that basically talks about how we went from the booms in the 1920s to the Great Depression and what happened during that evolution. So it's sort of like the Jesse Livermore era, but a little more on the institutional side, what happened to Wall Street during that time. The go-go years, talking about the 1960s on Wall Street, which is the story of a huge raging bull market um, that just didn't seem to want to end sort of the nifty 50 era, uh, and then sorry to drop a bunch of books. The other one's Bull, which is about sort of the late mid nineties into the early 2000s that I would strongly recommend to anyone trading cryptocurrencies because it's, it's the story of the growth of the tech bubble and the popping of the tech bubble and how that actually looked at the time to strategists and investors. Because I think there are a lot of parallels with what we're seeing with risk assets now and what you saw then, which is, you know, people buying the promise or the expectation of something and less 
uh, you know, on the valuations and what actually, you know, was reasonable based on uh, on how price had uh, had evolved. So that was a long-winded introduction to that. Yeah. I think that's a good point, though, not to, you know, if we're here to kind of provide good information, drop in those books, because one, I think one of the crucial pieces that most investors don't get to is the fundamental reasoning of why things move. Mm-hmm. And it takes spending a lot of time in the 20s, in the depression, in the 60s, in the 90s, and understanding what those markets look like. Because as you said, the one thing that hasn't changed is human psychology. It's yeah. adapted and changed slightly. But when you look at deeply at all those markets, they are very, the, very much the same. And that's a lot of times my business partner, we've talked about crypto for years and he's like, I just don't get it. And I said, yeah, but you've, there's nothing new here. You've done it all. It's the same. They just use different words and newer technology that happens to remove the humans. So yes. uh, sorry to interrupt you there, but um, want to make no, that, that point. I think that's absolutely right. And and I think, you know, what what is consistent is just this pattern, this boom and bust cycle. There is a natural cycle. There have been many, many bubbles. Most recently, we've had the tech bubble, the housing bubble, you know, the uh, treasury bubble or an interest rate bubble. And, and, I, and I think there will be many more. One thing I'm absolutely certain of is there will be other bubbles with other asset classes that haven't come out yet. And there will be other you know, busts that happen. And, and those are consistent patterns in human behavior for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So you'd be, you'd be well served by, by reviewing some of those previous cycles and how they looked like and, and how they felt like to the people that participated there. I, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about uh, behavioral biases or, or, or how, to, how to approach this market, I, I would say that, you know, behavioral finance is really an exercise in categorizing how we think. We are unfortunately hardwired to make very poor decisions. We are not designed to make good money decisions, I would say naturally. Uh, we're designed to panic and make emotional reactions. Um, and a lot of the work that I've done with my own firm called Sierra Alpha Research is uh, is basically applying the lessons of the aviation to investing and learning to fly an airplane. It was all about using checklists. It was all about if your engine cuts out, you follow this list and that's what you do. And the first time you simulate an engine failure, you panic, you absolutely lose it and your palms sweat and you're trying to find this piece of paper to figure out what the checklist is. But then months later, when you do the same thing, it's just no big deal, right? You do, it's not an emotional reaction. You go, yep, you go through all the steps and you, you kind of do it because you've gone through that routine. And there's so many parallels to, to investing. And it's all about getting out of the emotional reaction to a stimulus and getting to more of a disciplined, rational reaction to it. And, and I would say that one of the most common behavioral biases, and I've seen it run rampant with cryptocurrencies, is called confirmation bias. And this is the idea that you basically make your investment decision right at the beginning, and then you start gathering evidence. So I am bullish on Bitcoin, and now you just start looking for articles and videos and everything that just back up. You Google or you go to YouTube and say, bullish Bitcoin, basically, whether you know it or not. And all you do is you find a bunch of evidence that supports what you already wanted to do. You're basically adding conviction to what you already wanted. And what I always coach my clients to do is what's what I would consider evidence-based investing, which is your step one is clear your, you know, white, uh, clear your slate, look for evidence, gather all of it, and then look for the weight of the evidence. Should, you know, is, is are the, the guideposts telling me to be leaning positive or negative and why? And then you think about your positioning and where you should be as a result of that, but it is a it is a common issue I find with uh, with uh, cryptocurrencies. You decide you're bullish a long time ago, and then you're just trying to reinforce that with anything you can find. And that's that's the way you get caught on the wrong side of things fairly consistently, unfortunately. And I think that goes against your you know, in simplest terms, the basic fundamental principle: are higher highs, higher lows, or yes. lower highs, lower lows. Um, and I think also that's what separates Jesse Livermore, Paul Tudor Jones, all those guys from everyone else, because they do read the news. They do build fundamental cases, models, whatnot, but they let the data tell them when to act because they're just sitting there waiting, waiting because they've seen it a hundred times over. And when these numbers look like this, that means, you know, supply demand dynamics change. And that's when I'm going to jump in. Um, the firm I work at, um, we handle, you know, just traditional wealth management, high net worth clients. Um, and ours is data driven mm-hmm. or, you know, the, the portfolios are data driven. Everybody has different unique scenarios in their lives, which 
change cash flow dynamics or timing of, of when funds are needed, which plays into your investment case. You know, how long can these funds stay inv invested? What kind of upside or drawdown can they take? Um, but letting the data tell you first keeps you from doing the emotional thing, which drives that wider volatility band. Um, yeah. Do you have any opinions on kind of volatility as it relates to emotional reactions or is that something you monitor at all? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and I would say with volatility, I, I, um, I taught technical analysis at Brandeis University outside of Boston for a couple of years. And I took over the course from Charlie Kirkpatrick, who wrote arguably the best textbook on technical analysis. And the first time I sat in on his lecture uh, of the course I was going to take over from him, he said, volatility is opportunity. Quantitative analysts have, have tried to teach us that volatility is a bad thing, right? The more volatility, the more potential downside there is, is basically what they're modeling. The more risky it is, volatility is risk. And he said, I think volatility is opportunity. The more you have price swings, the more there's opportunity in there. But for me, I think it, it comes down to the simple concept of risk versus reward. I think a lot of investors, especially newer investors, think way more about the reward side than the risk side. They think about the upside potential and not as much about the downside potential. You think about what you stand to gain and not enough about what you stand to lose. And if you look psychologically, there's a thing called prospect theory, which actually shows that we, we hate losing a lot more than we like gaining is the way I would simplify that, right? The pain of loss is much more palpable and, and, uh, and real for us than, than gaining over time. And so there's this mismatch of where we focus our time versus what we're actually uh, trying to accomplish, I think, which, is, which should be looking for opportunity, but protecting ourselves from, from risk. So when you look at something like cryptocurrencies any, or, or stocks or ETFs or, or options or anything, the whole idea of taking on a bet of putting your capital to work is you are accepting a certain amount of risk for the potential for a certain amount of return. You have to think about that. I would argue as a cryptocurrency trader, if you're trading any of the coins, there in a lot of ways is a lot of volatility. So that just needs, that's not a bad thing. Volatility on its own is not good or bad. Um, I would say it's, it's more descriptive of what the nature of it is. You just have to think of it in terms of your risk versus reward. I think the volatility means you have potential, you have risk of a lot more potential drawdowns to achieve those gains that you're looking for and just make sure that's started, uh, part of your process. Yeah, I agree. And I'd done an episode with Greg Foss, who was a high yield um, trader uh, out of Canada in the early days. So had exposure to those high yield assets or, or high risk assets, volatile assets. Um, and he explains it, the, bond, the difference between bond and equity traders. Bond guys go in like, how much am I going to lose? And that's sort of always their mindset. And the equity guys are like, well, how much am I going to make? They don't really think about the downside. And, and so you got to have some balance um, because it, it's kind of pointless to trade an asset that doesn't have volatility because you, it, if we buy things as an asset, we expect to sell them in the future at some point, but you also need to know when to hit eject. Um, and and so, you know, I think that's really important, but I think that gets lost on a lot of people because they just hear volatility is a bad thing. And, you know, in a lot of ways, traditional markets have done a poor job, in my opinion, of explaining what the VIX means. They're like, oh, the fear index, uh, it's bad. And I was like, well, no, if you read the definition, you can have the VIX spike on a pop to the upside. It just tells you a big move is coming, not yeah. guaranteed that it's going down. Uh, but CNBC and and traditional markets will tell you if you get a spike in volatility, then the world's going to you know come to an end. Um, which I guess it's good for those trading buttons on the the dashboards. But um, <laughs> I think shedding a little light on that is what I wanted to uh, talk well, about. No, it's true. And I, you mentioned financial media, and I I mean I've I've spent a lot of time you know on on financial media and and you know running my own show on stock charts TV, and I you know I've. I think a lot of times it gets a bad rap for probably legitimate reasons, which is, you know, the need to sensationalize, the need to take every little thing and blow it up into a huge, important, you need to know this right now type of data point. And I would say, you know, I think financial media has a point if you if you use it deliberately, if you use it intentionally. And I think yeah. a lot of people use it kind of mindlessly, right? You see, you hear a headline, you hear, you know, hear a quick thing and you get drawn into this 
short-term movement and you all of a sudden you make it a, a huge deal and all of a sudden you're taking long-term you're making long-term decisions on short-term data which is which is bad i think if financial media if things you're reading and, and watching and hearing cause you to dig deeper cause you to challenge your own thesis cause you to review the evidence I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think hearing different points of view can be really, really helpful. And I, one of the things I missed from working at Fidelity was having a big group at, I mean, most of our meetings had a group of people with very different backgrounds and we would debate inflation or interest rate policy or, you know, the price of gold or, you know, financials versus energy stocks. And, and it would be a really good discussion. And, and if everyone sort of agreed on one side, someone would have to take the other side. We would have someone take the other side and just argue it so that we could think about what would that scenario look like. And I think with something like with uh, with stocks right now, I think you have to think about, all right, what would happen if the S&P went up 10%? What if the S&P went down 10%? What if it down, went down 30% similar to March of 2020? What would that look like? What would happen to my portfolio? What would I see that might cause me to take action? And I think the th same thing should be done with uh, with something like uh, like Bitcoin, what you know, what would a move back up to the 60s actually look like, and how might that play out, and what might the dynamics of that market be, and at what point would I recognize that the trend has changed and, and gone higher? Um, so, if 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 listening to financial media causes you to think about alternate scenarios and make sure you're prepared for what might happen, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I think the problem is mindless use of those uh, of those inputs. Yeah, I agree. One question though, your neighbors don't want to talk about interest rates and what would happen if the S&P dropped by 10. <laughs> yeah, it's not a great cocktail party conversation yeah. probably, but uh, yeah, it's a fair point. That's all right. Now I know why I don't have any friends. Um, so um, on that point, so for me, I view uh, Bitcoin and crypto as an evolution of the internet. Uh, mm. We don't know. We still don't know yet what's to come. It's just that early. Um and so I view it as a digital asset class. The world today, the, the resource desired by the world is data and information, just like it used to be oil or some other commodity, but today it's data and information. So it makes sense that we have an asset class that can play into that. Do you view crypto on the whole as an asset class? Does it fit in the traditional portfolio? Do you have any thoughts around that? It's a really good question. I, and uh, with my with my own firm, I work a lot with financial advisors and, and just thinking about asset allocation from a technical perspective. And I, you know, I think the challenge for a lot of traditional investors is you're still kind of programmed or we've been programmed and a lot of individuals too, for sort of that 60-40 balance, right? You're, you're as an investor, you should aim for 60% equities and 40% bonds. And that's a pretty good mix for most environments. And I just I think that model is just so antiquated relative to where things are. If you look at what's really working right now, it's commodities, arguably real estate is one of the top sectors in the S&P this year. So, I, you know, I don't know where that fits into that in that model, but it really doesn't. And so I, you know, I think, you know, for a long time, I, I hope, uh, you know, advisors and individuals have thought a little more holistically about what that should look like and how you should be allocated. And I as much as we try to label cryptocurrencies as a current I think having the word currency in its title is probably a really not a great thing because um, it's really not a currency it it has some similarities in some ways for sure but uh, but it's certainly not and if you if you make that comparison you're immediately starting to you know pigeonhole it as a particular thing and, and I would say it's it's behaving a little differently is it a pure risk on asset no because I don't think it's moving exactly in line with other risk assets as well I think it's sort of its own own thing so you know the way I think of that other part I think you you know as a as a as a allocator you think of your equity portion and your fixed income portion which hopefully given the performance has been lighter and lighter over time given limited uh, limited performance there you have to think of that other category and I think that other category is going to start to become less other like alternatives, real estate, gold and stuff, and really thinking about it all as a, as a mix and thinking of all these different levers that you could pull as an investor. I think cryptocurrencies are one of those pieces and they sort of stand on their own. I think the return profiles, what we've seen with it, um, sort of legitimize the fact that it's its own, it's its own, uh, uh, it's its own thing. And I think we need to think of it that way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the 60-40 model, I don't know, it was the 70s or 80s when it kind of came into play. And um you know, it made sense uh, with bonds, negative real yields, basically, at this point, does it because you're not getting the income, you've got to go somewhere. And and I've really kind of changed my view and uh, here in the last couple of years to it's either dollars or not dollars. 
And so that means I either hold this cash that I will use. And now that we have inflation, that means, well, I've got to be in not dollars, which if we just make it really easy, that's equities, international, crypto, uh, bonds, but if you kind of look at the profile there, for the most part, you're not getting what you're paying for. Um, but there is some, there's still a place in the overall portfolio for all those things. But the 60 40, you can call it that, but you've kind of got to break down that 40 side into yep, different right. buckets. Um, right. So maybe the name doesn't fit as well. The other thing I, you, you touched on, like if Bitcoin is a currency or if it's not, um, I agree. I think. For the way money needs to work, it can do multiple of the things that money needs to do today that our you know cash dollars or credit card or gold bars don't do. Um, so it could fit in that. I think currency is probably the world's just not looking for. It doesn't need another currency. We have 180 or 200 of them, um, and so I kind of I've written some, but I hadn't really put it out. But Bitcoin is just a Swiss Army knife because yeah. if needed, it could be a currency. If needed, it can be an asset or an investment. And if needed, you could trade it. You can kind of do that with other things, just not as quickly and easily. So that's just something I thought uh, while you were talking. One last thing to kind of maybe wrap it up with all the news, all the FOMO, all the boom bust. Uh, in these traditional markets and even in crypto, if you ever find yourself lost, are there a certain set of tools, a certain set of resources, a certain set of things that you just kind of go back and put the training wheels on and say, okay, <laughs> here's what I should be looking at. Here's what it's saying. And here's how the rotations historically work in these types of markets. Yeah, that's a really good question. I, so for me, I, me I mentioned uh, experience learning to fly airplanes and I always go back to the checklist model. I actually, you know, again, and my, with my own firm, it's a lot of coaching uh, investors, advisors, and, and individual investors, institutional investors on, on basically what their decision-making process is, and they coach them on improving their decision-making process. I think we spend way too much time trying to think about things that we can't control, things like what the market's going to do tomorrow, what the Fed's going to do, what's going to happen to the price of Bitcoin. We have no con direct control over that. And we don't spend enough of our time on things that are within our control, which are how we make decisions, what information we're consuming, how our, you know, what our, what our morning coffee routine is, right? We're spending our time on. And so I often, I often encourage people that, uh, you know, when, when things feel challenging, when you feel like you don't have a good read on things, go back to sort of the basic building blocks of your routine. How are you spending? And what's the first thing you look at every day? What's your order of operations for how you orient yourself to what's happening? And what's one thing you could upgrade in that sort of routine? You know, write down your decision-making process. What, you know, if you had to make a, you know, if you were going to make a trade right now on Ethereum, what would be the steps that you would take to make that decision? And I bet there's one or two things that you could improve on that, right? What could you, what's the worst part of that process? What's the least effective part? And get rid of it or change it for something else. And I, I think a lot of times, uh, especially with, uh, with newer investors, you, you know, we may think we have a really disciplined investment process, but if you actually list out why you're making decisions, you'll find there's a lot of fluffiness to that. There's a lot of softness there. So I literally coach people to write down on a piece of paper, here's what I'm doing, here's why, and follow this list. And, and I have a technical checklist, has seven pieces on it. It starts with Dow theory. Is this chart going up or downwards? Okay, where is the price relative to key moving averages? Where are the key support and resistance levels and where are we at relative to those? If it's an equity, what, you know, how is this equity or ETF performing relative to a benchmark of some sort? And there are a bunch of other you know, questions in that list. And answering each of those questions consistently is what gives you consistent returns. I, I've always told people an imperfect but consistent routine is way better than a perfect, perfect but in, uh, inconsistent routine. And uh, aim for consistency, and, and that's going to be much better than aiming for, for perfection, but doing it haphazardly. And so for me, I think it's all about what is within your control. You can control what information you consume. You can control what processes you take. And, and, and as you mentioned on, on stock charts, I you know a lot of what we do is try to encourage people, give the tools you need to make good investment decisions. And that, that, that really is, is all about following a good routine. And that's what we try to empower people to do. You know, the, the best thing about that little segment there is that it's applicable 
to many facets of life, not just trading um, equities, options, Bitcoin or, or Ethereum or whatever your favorite token is. Uh, so I think that's great. Um, and I think it, in a lot of ways, it, it's forward looking into what's still to come in the crypto markets because that algorithmic process-based systematic approach basically led to indexing in equities. And it's still not in crypto yet. And, you know, now that the banks, hedge funds and, and the big players are in, I think that we'll probably see that. Um, so I guess I, I said we'd wrap it up. I have two more questions. Uh, <laughs> the first one, um, you mentioned relative. I think that's very overlooked. Again, it's cash or not cash. My return relative to what? My return relative to my needs. You know, we you see oftentimes with clients, investors, and traders, whatever they may be, they're like, well, I didn't beat the S&P. Does it matter? Because if you did beat the S&P, what would you do with that excess? Or if you, if you don't like this stock or that stock relative to what? And so my favorite tool on stockcharts.com, and really is the only reason why I have a subscription, is the relative rotation graph. Mm -hmm. Do you... Yeah use that do you find value in that is that something that often. helps often and i i i gotten to know julius de Kempner, who created that visualization years ago we actually used to subscribe to his research when he was a publishing he was working at a broker in europe and we would get his report and we started asking him to send us a little image of the rrg every week and then we made a big uh, pdf of all of those images and we would you know go page by page so we could see the rotation and what's great is on, on stock charts and, and a couple other places, you can literally put the rotation in motion. What, and what you're describing is this, is this beautiful uh, uh, visualization that shows you how assets are rotating around a benchmark in the middle. And he really just, you know, he started it to look at how sectors were rotating around the S&P or, or a European right. benchmark, which is beautiful. And it's fantastic. And I look at that every day. Um, but you can also think about it from an asset allocation decision. How are these this group of 12 ETFs rotating around a balanced fund in the middle and where are you seeing opportunities rotate? Looking at a group of cryptocurrencies and how they're rotating around each other, you can do a lot of really cool visualizations. And what it does is it helps you think about not just that particular asset. And I mentioned earlier, a lot of times we put our blinders on and we focus on this one chart, this one trade, but you have to remember that your one trade is in a universe of millions of trades that you could make at any moment. There are a lot of moving parts to the market. And the RRG, the relative rotation graph, helps you think about how things fit into the bigger puzzle, which I think is, is crucial. Yeah, and that, that one trade is relative. Yeah, relative that's exactly right. You're what, making a relative decision. Yeah, right? and that's yeah. the value of RRG is, and I came across it, I don't know, at some point on a Bloomberg terminal. They're an addiction like most other things. But when I didn't have access anymore, the one thing or two things I missed was the RRG page and options because it showed you the volatility and yeah. then you could see how things rotated. And that's how I actually um, stumbled across that you guys had it at Stock Charts. Um, so yeah. I'm thankful. Uh, hope it always stays. So the, the last you. question, and this will probably bring back more of what you saw in your Fidelity days. Now that we have banks, hedge funds, everybody else kind of coming into crypto markets, personal opinion, we're rebuilding the financial rails with better technology. Um, how do you think the impact of that large amount of dollar flow in may change the behavior or the price action of you know just the major networks a really really good question and i would say you know that's largely an unknown i think it's it, it's it's uh, it, it's pure speculation at this point to think about how that could evolve but i if you think about the sort of normal trajectory of uh, of an asset class what you know based on what i would assume is the early participants it's going to be more volatile it's going to be you know less liquid it's going to be very uh, uncertain it's going to be you know, there's not a lot to go on. And so it's a pure, you know, uh, it's an emotional reaction to what what people are thinking. Um, what you're what you're suggesting, what you're what you're pointing out is the fact that it's becoming a little more um, a little more mainstream. And and mm -hmm. if you think about, you know, you mentioned banks and hedge funds coming in your episode, right? But there's still not a great way to trade Bitcoin using ETFs, right? I mean, there's, mm -hmm. there, there are products, but you know, something like the GBTC, which I think a lot of investors have tried to use, there are huge challenges with that kind of structure because it 
traded at a monster premium. So, you know, there's a period earlier where Bitcoin's up 40% and GBTC's flat because it's, you know, it's you're not just betting on that asset. So I think it's still very underdeveloped. And I think it's less for me, the excitement that some banks are coming in. It's the potential of, of all the people that still are not participating. I think that's what that's what provides a lot of the upside for cryptocurrencies going forward. I, and I think, you know, the real question is, is it that you have to remember that there are different things. Bitcoin is one piece of this. Blockchain technology is a whole different piece, which I think is absolutely here to stay. There, there are so many great applications of that technology. Whether or not Bitcoin ends up, you know, even though it was sort of the first and sort of led this attraction for a lot of people, does that end up coming out the strongest? I'm not sure, but I, I do know that the chart is going to tell us whether or not that's the case. And that's why I think you don't have to worry about whether Bitcoin is the one or Ethereum is the one or Litecoin or whatever it is. The charts are going to tell you where people are rotating. And I would say follow the trends that are working and overall you're going to navigate that uncertainty pretty well. Yeah, I totally agree there. Um, and the GBTC point is a good one because it kind of trades like the old closed-in funds yeah. Um, you know, with the NAV and everything, but it acts like an ETF, but it's in a trust structure. So it's all, it's kind of a lot of everything. Um, and I think for that specific piece is one thing, just traditional market guys like, oh, I can buy Bitcoin on in my Schwab account. True, but you're dealing with a public market psychology and behavior while the underlying asset is trading in this completely different market that has a totally different behavior and and works very different so i think that's always again back at the foundation understand the different things you own and how they how they react relative to something else um david i appreciate the time today it was awesome maybe a couple things if you want to tell listeners where they might can find you um or any resources that you think might be great um for for people to go and seek out that want to learn more yeah, it was a pleasure, Kane. Thanks so much for the invitation. This was a lot of fun, actually. Really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, stockcharts.com, as you mentioned, that's where that that's where I spend most of my time as the chief market strategist. Um, and if you go there, we have a, a link for Stock Charts TV, which is our 24-7 streaming channel. And I host our closing bell show uh, every uh, every evening during the uh, during the week. And cryptocurrencies have a frequent place on that show more and more. I've I've, uh, I've incorporated into what we do. And again, just to think about how it relates to all the other asset classes that we're looking at. Um, other than that, look me up on Twitter. I'm at DKellerCMT. And on YouTube, my channel is called Market Misbehavior. So uh, check me out in either of those places as well. Perfect. All great stuff. Uh, thanks a lot, David. Yeah, it was a pleasure, Kane. Thank you.